morning, friends. It's great to see you here again today. Look forward to this time together every week as I prepare. The Lord uh, guides my thoughts during the study of His Word. So anxious to see what the Holy Spirit has for us every week. And today is, is no different. We are certain to hear from the Lord, uh, to see uh, what He has for us, particularly individually and as a church as we look into this setting. I have really enjoyed the study of the Gospel of Mark. It has been such an encouragement. I, I hope it's been an encouragement to you uh, as we uh, look through this amazing record of the life and ministry of Jesus, our Savior. One of the, the primary objectives of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, of course, is the the saving faith of those who read, right? Those who hear, uh, those who encounter the Word of God. Is their faith genuine, authentic, saving? And uh, this is something that, that ought to be thought of, be, that ought to concern us as believing folks. How do we know if, if our Christian experience is real? How do you know whether or not your Christian experience is genuine, authentic, real? Is what you experience as faith the same kind of faith that God requires to be saved? Do you know that? We ought to know for sure, right? The Apostle John, who was here on this day, here in Mark chapter 10, wrote later on in his first epistle that these things are written in Scripture that we may know whether or not our Faith is true, genuine, authentic, saving faith, biblical faith. And so what, what the Holy Spirit does for us so that we could answer the question, is my faith authentic, biblical, saving faith? He, he sprinkles for us throughout all of Scripture examples of authentic, biblical, saving faith. And today's passage is one of those examples, and it's a beautiful example in a clear example. And so my desire for each of us today in this room as we study this text is to turn the spotlight inward, to listen to the words written by Mark and, and inspired by the Holy Spirit, to check to see whether or not our faith reflects that biblical saving faith. We can actually literally measure our faith experience against what we see in the scriptures, like our passage today, to check to be sure it's authentic faith. I know that's important to everyone who's on their way to heaven. Uh, so if you have an interest in heaven, this may be a good day to examine your life and, and faith particularly. So the setting here, we're going to be focusing on verses 46 through 52 in Mark chapter 10. The setting is Jesus' final approach, his last approach in his ministry to Jerusalem. And he stops by in the city of Jericho, uh, which was uh, just not too far away from the Old Testament version of Jericho, the city that was destroyed uh, when um, Joshua took them into the promised land. 
But this is a rebuilding of a city called the same, by the same name in very close proximity to that same city. And uh, this particular Jericho is about um, 15, 16 miles northeast of Jerusalem, about five miles uh, west of the Jordan River. So you can kind of get a picture of it in your mind. Jesus has uh, half a day or a little, little more than a half a day's travel to get from Jericho to Jerusalem, his final uh, place, where he intends, of course, uh, to offer himself as a sacrifice for the sins of his people. And so the, the crowd that you see here in verse 46 that's with Jesus is not a surprise for a couple reasons. One, wherever Jesus went, there was a crowd. And two, uh, good Jews went to Jerusalem to honor or to celebrate the Passover. The Passover was once a year at this time of year uh, in the springtime when, when uh, all Jews, good Jews, went there. And so this big crowd that was with Jesus was simply on this journey to get to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. But this crowd was particularly interested in, in Jesus. Uh, most Jews would kind of see it as an honor to travel with some noted rabbi to Jerusalem from their hometown or the region from which they come. And in this case, this was Jesus. He was the noted rabbi. And this, this large group of people were traveling with him and his disciples to arrive at Jerusalem on time for the celebration. So in keeping with the divine timetable that we've seen kind of outlined by Mark uh, in this gospel, Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem this final time to die. He knew it. He had already told his disciples this, his disciples this for three, three different times. He, he knew that he would die as the Lamb of God uh, for the sins of the world. This particular story that was just read to you took place one week before Calvary, one week before his crucifixion. And this miracle of healing Bartimaeus uh, in the story is actually his last miracle before his resurrection, which is his greatest miracle. So there's some significance to the story here, all right? It's, it's really coming up on Passion Week. This is the final week of Jesus' earthly life and ministry. And so by looking at the faith of Bartimaeus here, which is why Mark included it in the gospel, we can have an accurate idea of what biblical saving faith looks like. You want an example? Here it is. Pay close attention. This is one of the big reasons that Mark included this particular story was to show us who may be wondering what is authentic biblical saving faith to give an idea what it is. Something to measure our experience by. It's not a good idea to base your eternal security, your eternal situation on your own opinions. And so Mark here gives us some objective things to be measured by. What I want to do here is I want to just show you the ingredients that I can see, and I hope you'll see them, of genuine, authentic, biblical saving faith, as seen in Bartimaeus. All right? Let's look at these point by point as we work through the text. The first is, of course, knowing your need. This is the first ingredient of biblical saving faith. Knowing your need. 
One of the greatest hindrances to people coming to faith in Jesus is the ignorance of their need. They don't know that they need Jesus. Uh, they are blind to the true condition of their souls. This is what the Apostle Paul told the Corinthian church uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 concerning this very issue. He said, in their case, that is those who don't believe in Jesus, the God, small g, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. They're blind to their own need. They don't even know that they need Jesus. They, they think they're doing fine without him. They say, look at my life. I mean, I've, I've got a job. I've got a great family. I'm healthy. Uh, what's Jesus going to add to this picture? Please tell me. That might be their attitude here. But the plea from Bartimaeus here is illuminating, isn't it? Look at what you hear, what you see in this plea from Bartimaeus. This plea teaches us what he thought about Jesus. This plea teaches us what he thought about himself and his own needful condition. It was really a, a cry deep from within his heart that the Holy Spirit allows us to see here really in real time. He knew he had nothing, that is Bartimaeus knew he had nothing, he was a poor beggar. He knew he deserved nothing. According to Jewish theology, his blindness was a result of, of his own sin and God's judgment on that sin. And so how he viewed his own condition was that he was responsible for his blindness because somehow or another he had offended God. So when Bartimaeus cried out for mercy that we read of here, it was an acknowledgement of his sin and his need for not just physical healing, but a need for spiritual healing, a need of a savior. This is what we see here from the plea of Bartimaeus, an acknowledgement of need. Bartimaeus was very aware of his circumstances. He lived them every day. He sat by the, the gate in um, Jericho, day after day, hoping someone would give him a few pennies so he could go buy a loaf of bread. He, he completely knew his circumstances. He, he knew that he was blind and had no hope of recovery. Most scholars believe that he was blind from birth. This is really a picture of the spiritual blindness that each of us are born with. Did you know that you were born spiritually blind? You don't come into this world knowing you have a spiritual problem a sin condition that you must rectify? No, we come in thinking all is dandy, don't we? And until the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see, in fact, what Bartimaeus was here seeing and, and the Holy Spirit's recording, we continue through life that way. Finally recognizing by the grace of God through the Holy Spirit's work, we actually can see our need for Christ. What a blessing it is, as hard as it is. It is a true blessing. Jesus had, just a few days before this healing of Bartimaeus, told his disciples this. Look at Mark 10, verse 15. Right where we're at, just a couple days before this event, walking out of Jerusalem, we read this. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Do you think blind Bartimaeus qualifies here for someone who realizes his need? who sees his condition as childlike in nature? Certainly, he certainly does. 
<clears throat> Bartimaeus acknowledged that his need and dependence on God was real. This is the perfect example, I think, for those of us who have spiritual needs. Jesus is our only hope, and we must pursue him and him alone. Chuck Colson shares a story in his book, Who Speaks for God, about an interview that Mike Wallace did with an Auschwitz survivor named Yehil Denur. Denur was a witness at the Nuremberg trials, uh, war crimes trials of Adolf Eichmann. You may be familiar with that, but when Denur, uh, this Jew who was at Auschwitz as a prisoner, entered the courtroom to be a witness and to identify Eichmann as the, the man who had put thousands of other Jews to death, when he walked in for the first time into this trial, since the first time he saw Eichmann at Auschwitz, uh, Denur began to sob and so, sob so heavily he fainted right in the courtroom as he walked in looking at Eichmann sitting there. And when Mike Wallace asked Denur why he fainted, he didn't give the answer that we might expect. He, he didn't say that it was from fear or hatred or terrible memories. What Denur said was in that moment he realized that Eichmann wasn't all, that all-powerful army officer who sent thousands to their deaths. No, he was just an ordinary man. Denur said this made him realize that in that moment he was capable of doing all the same things that Eichmann had done. He was just like Eichmann. And of course, it crushed him. Mike Wallace's takeaway was this, and he wrote this in his interview. There is an Eichmann in each of us. This is exactly the problem with our fallen sin nature. We are all affected by sin and under its horrific power before we come to Christ by faith. We are all capable of terrible sins, just like Eichmann, and before God, one sin is just as damning as the next. And so before we think that certainly we're better than him, we need to reconsider what is biblical faith. It's an acknowledgement of need. It's a realization that my, my least sin is just as damning as Eichmann's worst sin. Stealing a candy bar when you were six is damning. As damning as putting thousands of innocent Jews to death. It's striking, isn't it? Once we recognize the darkness of our souls and the offense that we have personally caused God, then and only then are we candidates for the miracle of grace. This is what is so poignant about blind Bartimaeus' cry. Have mercy on me, Jesus, son of David. Have mercy on me, was his plea. And what is mercy? Think with me. Mercy is an act of God whereby we don't receive something we deserve. And what is it that we deserve for one sin? Isn't it condemnation? It is. This is what the Bible teaches us. No matter how much better we are than the next guy, we have still sin on our hands, don't we? We find ourselves in Bartimaeus' shoes in that we are sinners who deserve God's judgment, but we have no sight of Jesus because we can't see him. We must take 
the reports that we hear about Jesus by faith, don't we? And there's another similarity between us and Bartimaeus. He never saw Jesus. Have any of you? No. Only thing that he had to go by was reports. And what do we have to go by? Reports of Jesus, right? We're in the same boat as blind Bartimaeus. We read of his person. We read of Jesus' miracles. We read of his love and his kindness. And we, we read that he saves those who come to him by faith. And what's been your response, attender? What is your response to the report? Is your response to the report about Jesus the same as Bartimaeus's? Listen to the way Peter discusses this, who was also in this event. Though you have not seen him, have you seen him? No. Those you who have, though you have not seen him, what you love him, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. This is Bartimaeus 201 right here. And so the first ingredient of authentic biblical saving faith is a knowledge of your need, an acknowledgement of that need. Secondly, it's believing in Jesus. Believing in Jesus is the common phrase that we use to describe what being a Christian is, right? Oh, that person believes in Jesus. I believe in Jesus. Do you believe in Jesus? And if the answer is yes, ah, oh, you're a Christian, is our conclusion, right? Because you believe in Jesus. Well, James says something interesting to us, doesn't he, about this? He says the demons believe in Jesus. How's that working out? So, believing in Jesus can't be the only description of biblical saving faith, can it? So, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? Again, here goes the Holy Spirit sprinkling throughout the record of Scripture examples so that we can know what it means to believe in Jesus, what it means to have faith in Christ. Our story today is one of the more clear ones. When, when blind Bartimaeus heard that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by, because he heard all the commotion going on, what's going on, what's going on, Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout out the name, Jesus, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And of course, son of David is the messianic title of Jesus. Proof that at least Bartimaeus believed in the true identity of Christ in that moment. Jesus, Messiah, son of David, have mercy on me. He had also, like we, heard of the miracles of Jesus and hoped that just maybe Jesus would restore his sight like he had done for thousands of others. 
Maybe if we just run to Jesus, he'll save us like he has saved millions of others. Blind Bartimaeus heard and understood things that the high priest Annas and Caiaphas and many other scribes and Pharisees, religious leaders, would never see or understand. This blind man saw things that the religious leaders of his day, who were probably in Jericho at that time, never saw. He understood the true identity of Jesus Christ, and he understood his need to plead for mercy and help from this Messiah. And so Bartimaeus had concluded that Jesus was, in fact, this promised Messiah of Old Testament writings, and he had put his complete trust in this Jesus. He believed. He knew that only Jesus could meet his need. Just like every one of us have, has exercised faith this morning, blind Bartimaeus was exercising faith in this story by calling out for the only one who could actually touch and heal him. You say, well, how have I exercised faith this morning? You are all exercising faith right now. When you came in this morning, did you check the uh, schematics of that pew you sat in? Did you test it? Maybe had your spouse sit in it first and see if it would hold you? No, we all come in exercising faith and sit in the chairs in the room. No matter what the room, we take for granted the chair is going to hold us. What is that? That's faith is what it is. It's biblical faith, in fact. How about this? On the way to church this morning, you exercise faith by staying in the right lane in traffic, right? Not right versus left, not right versus wrong, or I guess both. Um, so you exercise faith. You, you, the faith is this. You believe that everybody else is going to obey traffic laws and stay in their lane, and you stay in yours and we'll get to our destination safely. That's faith. That's biblical faith. That particular faith isn't saving, but it's biblical. You're, you're, you're trusting in something that you have not yet proven. You might say, well, I sat here last week. Well, so? This is biblical faith. This past six weeks, I have exercised biblical faith. I have put all my weight on my right foot. None of my weight on my left foot, except for two mistakes. This biblical faith, right in front of you. I'm standing on my right foot now, uh, and when I go to put my weight on my left foot, that's not biblical faith. Biblical faith requires you to put all your weight on the thing in focus. In your case, the seat. In our case, Jesus Christ. In, in fact, biblical faith would say this, as Paul said to the Galatians, it's either Jesus and nothing or you're out. You cannot add to it. It's not Jesus and yoga. It's not Jesus and a little bit of sprinkling of other religions just in case. No, it's, it's Jesus or nothing. That's biblical faith. And that was Bartimaeus' faith. If Jesus wasn't going to save him and heal him, no one could. That was the second ingredient of biblical saving faith. Thirdly, it's calling for mercy. Listen, true belief, true belief is always consummated by crying out to Jesus. True belief, biblical faith, is always consummated 
by crying out to Jesus. If you believe that he is the only one who can solve the chaos of your life, this, the sin that which, for which you are responsible, then you, in fact, will call out to him and ask that he show you mercy, that he save you. This is the natural response to belief. It's crying for mercy. It's, it's a response. You believe this to be true, and so you respond by crying out to the one who can save you. Bartimaeus knew that he had very little chance of getting Jesus' attention because of the massive crowds and all the others around him who also had serious needs. He wasn't the only guy in the crowd with needs. If this was a normal situation, there were hundreds of people there with issues, wanting to be healed, wanting to be touched, wanting to be spoken to or question answered. But Bartimaeus knew this was his only chance. This was a very small window of opportunity, so he began to shout out to Jesus, a natural response to belief. He believed that this guy could do it. This guy was the Messiah. This guy was kind and loving and good. He can save me. Even after being told to pipe down, he shouted all the more. And so when you find yourself in that place in life where not much makes sense, and you've come to the end of all your own efforts for peace, for purpose, for meaning, and you begin to look around outside of yourself finally because within yourself you haven't found anything that matches your need. You may, at, during that moment, at least the way the Holy Spirit orchestrates things, you may get a glimpse of Jesus. And if you do, it's because of the grace of God through the work of the Holy Spirit. He gives you a vision for Christ and it looks good, doesn't it? You, you finally realize if if you're given this blessing from God, that Jesus is the one with the answers. He's the only one who can deal with your sin. He's the only one that can answer your questions. And when you conclude that he is the answer, what do you do? You, you jump at the opportunity to meet him. You don't have to be told twice. You, you even have a, a sense of urgency like Bartimaeus. I've got to get to Jesus so you will cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. If you're a believer, you've done that, haven't you? Next is pursuing Jesus. This is the next ingredient to biblical saving faith. It's pursuing Jesus. And I want you to add this, if you would write this in next to your notes, persistently. Right after Jesus, right in persistently. Pursuing Jesus persistently, like Bartimaeus. Be quiet already. We're trying to listen to Jesus. We want to get close to him. You're yakking over here. You're screaming. No. Persistence. This is the next ingredient to authentic faith. It's the persistent pursuit of Jesus. If the Holy Spirit has given you a new heart, uh, that, that new heart that, that he gives all who come to him by faith. He, he, in fact, gives this new heart which responds in faith. Guess what? That new heart that you receive at the moment of conversion loves Jesus. That old stone heart that he replaced loves self, loves the world. The new heart, given at conversion, loves Jesus and wants nothing more than Jesus. 
From the moment of conversion to the last breath you take, the truly saved person will make the pursuit of Jesus his primary, her primary objective through life. So examine yourself. Is Jesus your primary objective? Oh, you may have others, but they're not primary. Right? With each passing day, we'll want to be more and more and more with Jesus. And by the way, with each passing day, those of us who are actually pursuing Jesus become more like him day after day after day. We see this as well. In our story today, Bartimaeus refused to be quieted. He was determined to get to Jesus. He didn't care what the worldly crowd thought or said to him or about him concerning his desire for Jesus. He wouldn't be deterred. He must have Jesus. And so he continued to yell at the top of his lung to the annoyance of everyone around him. After some discouragement from the crowd to be quiet, Bartimaeus got Jesus' attention and received this wonderful positive response. Jesus actually called him out of the crowd to come near. Out of this crowd of thousands and thousands, some beggar off in the distance, Jesus kind of, you, come. Can you imagine that moment? And then, of course, Jesus fulfilled the work of grace in his life by asking, what do you want me to do for you? What would your answer be to that question? Well, let me think. Hmm. If you know your need, there's only one answer, right? I want you, Jesus. That's what I want. Friends, do you want to be saved? Do you want to grow in your faith? Then you must act like Bartimaeus here. You must demonstrate the saving biblical faith. You must not care what others think about you, what others say about you in your pursuit of Christ. They're going to talk that way. The world doesn't care. The world doesn't want to be showed any differently. Why does it seem that there are so many who like the idea of Jesus but will only extend half-hearted pursuit of him? Why is it that so many are easily deterred from the pursuit of Christ? What's going on here? Well, I think the answer is pretty simple. People will only extend half-hearted pursuit and be easily deterred from something they don't really take seriously. They don't sufficiently feel the seriousness of their sin, so they don't consider Jesus to be seriously the answer to the problem. There must be some other way without giving up all, like the rich young ruler was asked to do by Jesus. There's got to be another way. How if I give part of me? How about if I do a little bit. I, I do, after all, have a life, Jesus. These folks that half-heartedly pursue Jesus um, don't really believe the condition of their soul is as serious as the Bible makes it out to be. Even as Christians, we can become complacent in our pursuit of Jesus, right? This is an ongoing battle even for those of us who are believers. Which is why we need one another. Which is why God has given us the church. In other words, Christians. In Hebrews chapter 3, um, we spent some time talking about this particular passage. Um, 
back when we were studying the book of Hebrews, it says this, take care brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Don't let this complacency get a foothold. It's lethal, is what the author of Hebrews says. Verse 13, but exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that, you, that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You want to keep from being hardened? You want to keep from falling irreparably away? Which is impossible for someone who knows Christ actually, really, truly, authentically. But you know how to avoid that? Be connected to the church. Do you realize that you, if you're a Christian, are the person sitting next to you eternal security? How do you like that? You are supposed to be connected to the people in this room. So when they begin to drift, when they begin to become calloused or disinterested, you can say, hey friend, remember how serious our condition is. Remember the importance of being with Christ and being with his church. That is our job. That is, that is why we're here. We gather together week after week in this room and in our small groups for that primary purpose. If you can see the Christless condition of your soul, whether you're saved or unsaved, as Bartimaeus saw his condition in his life, you would let nothing keep you from Jesus. You would shout all the louder, Jesus Son of David, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. And then the last ingredient of authentic saving faith is this, following Jesus faithfully. Following him faithfully. If you read down here to verse 52, you realize that an amazing thing happened. After he was healed, Bartimaeus didn't go home. He didn't go back to his old way of life. Everything changed. I guess we read that someplace it says, the old is gone, the new has come. So Bartimaeus did not go home. It says he followed Jesus to Jerusalem. This is what happens to people who have been changed by Jesus. They follow him. Imagine that. He followed Jesus to Calvary. He witnessed the day of Pentecost. Church history suggests that Bartimaeus became a pillar in the church of Jerusalem after the ascension. Not only that, it's thought that his father, Timaeus, who's mentioned in this text, came to faith as a result of the work of grace in his son, Bartimaeus. So evidently, those who have true authentic saving faith are different people. They're changed and their lives have an effect on other people. Even if it's within the family, as hard, of that, as, hard as that seems at times. The effect of grace on a genuine convert is life-changing. <laughs> Old things lose their luster. The world loses its powerful draw. When Jesus calls, once he begins this good work, Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, he completes it. Once you experience true grace and divine mercy, there's nothing that's outside the boundaries for Jesus to ask of you. Is there? No. So have your eyes been opened by Jesus like Bartimaeus's were? Has your life changed as a result of an encounter with Christ? Are you following him daily? 
Can you see these marks of genuine, authentic, saving faith? That's the point of these stories, right? It's not just some history lesson here. The Holy Spirit has presented these things for you to examine your own life. And now let's move to the second main point, the character of a merciful Savior. Jesus, of course, is always the focus of every story. Um, Bartimaeus, in this case, was only a prop. Jesus is always the focus of the story. And we see here, revealed to us in this story, Jesus' passion for people. The recorded life of Jesus in the Gospels is an amazing life. Jesus is always with people. Have you noticed that? Every time Jesus is anywhere, there's a bunch of people with him. The only time there's a recording of, of Jesus not with people is when he's with his heavenly father praying, communing. Every other time, waking or sleeping, is with people. Why? Why this enamoring with people? Listen closely. This is really important. Jesus of Nazareth, the one in this story, is the creator of the universe. And the crowning glory of his creation is what? People. Humanity. Us. And so, he desires to be with us, his people. He desires to be with the crowning glory of his creation. This is ever since he created humanity. He's wanted to be with them, starting in the Garden of Eden, remember? With Adam and Eve walking in the cool of the evening, talking, fellowshipping, enjoying a relationship. Even after the Garden, when, when sin separated God from his beloved humanity, God planned for there to be a way even to bypass that so he could be with his people. It's called the Old Testament sacrificial system. So that this temporary solution to sin would allow God to commune with people still. All throughout Old Testament history, we see God with his people. And then we come to the incarnation. And as John describes it in John chapter 1 verse 14, the word, that is Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, became flesh and dwelt among us. Guess what that word in the Greek is? Tabernacled. <laughs> Jesus came and tabernacled with us again. Just like in the Old Testament tabernacle, Old Testament sacrificial system. God with his people in spite of sin. God wants to be with his people. Why? Because he loves us. <laughs> he loves people. That's why Jesus is called the friend of sinners. He loves people. He loves you this morning. He has a passion for people. Next we see in this story an attentiveness to the hurting. You see that? Jesus stopped on an unlikely time on his way to the cross preparing his own soul, his own heart and mind to face this gruesome death, he stops and thinks of others. I'm not sure that would have been my response. Um, 
but this response shows us that God, Jesus, does not ignore those who cry out to him for mercy. He does not ignore those who have hurting situations in their lives, who are struggling just to stay above water. And I think this story here helps us understand the great heart of love that Jesus had for ruined sinners. It was his primary occupation, solving the pain and hardship of people. His heart remains the same today. Remember, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The same Jesus who healed Bartimaeus is here now waiting to heal you. He's a friend of sinners. He loves people. He's attentive to hurting people. You know, you may be in this room this morning and, and think that your life is going dandy and really don't see a need for Jesus. On the other hand, you're maybe here this morning with a heavy heart, with your sins crushing you from every angle and seeing no way out with needs flowing out of you that everyone can see. Jesus cares about both types, the people who see and don't see. No matter what your situation, Jesus knows and is never too busy, never uninterested. He will always meet you where you are. Always. And if you decide to cry out to him, he hears your pleas. He hears your cries for mercy. Uh, even when they're faint cries, even if they're hard to distinguish, he hears those cries. Even if they come from a huge crowd of other beggars, he can identify your cry and say, come. Just like Bartimaeus. The heart cry is one that always gets the attention of Jesus. Always. And so as we continue to the end of our, our sermon about this wonderful text, I want to just put in a parenthesis real quick. And it is this heart of Jesus. It's an amazing heart, isn't it? Uh, we are told in Romans chapter 8 that we are being conformed to the likeness of this Jesus, of this Savior, this one who has a heart for sinners. And so if I am in the process of being conformed into the likeness of Christ, am I becoming more like him? Am I attentive to hurting people? Do I know if someone out in the lobby is hurting? Or do they have to yell, Pastor John? No, if I'm becoming more like Jesus, I should be sensing the needs of people. Just like Jesus was, right? That's what we who follow Christ grow into. We become like Jesus. We become attentive to hurting people. We do ministry to hurting people. We, we take time out of our busy schedule, even those things that we think are interruptions, and we, we, we view them as divine appointments because we're becoming like Jesus. And we should never be surprised at the fact that Jesus saves undesirable people. Even people like Bartimaeus, blind, stinky, sitting on the side of the road begging for a penny. Jesus is always saving these types, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, well, that's hard to believe until you look in the mirror, right? See, put yourself in Bartimaeus' old worn-out sandals just for a moment. 
He finally got Jesus' attention, as unlikely as that was. Jesus called for him out of this huge crowd. I can't imagine the thrilling of his soul beyond the comprehension, I suppose. And he threw off his cloak with great urgency and worked his way to Jesus however he could. Maybe someone led him there. And this is an amazing picture. A needy, blind man, and by the way, I was thinking maybe this is a picture. Maybe someone's already painted this. And if you, do, if you know about this, let me know, because I'd like to get a copy. A needy, blind man, humbly standing before Jesus with the countenance of hope and expectation on his face. And in that moment, with a simple word from the creator of the universe, who at one time and not too far past said, let there be light said the same thing to this man's soul. Not just to his physical eyes, but to his soul. What, what do you want me to do for you? <laughs> what a question from a sovereign God. The, the high king of heaven, the son of God, the second person of the Trinity incarnate, the creator of the universe offered to serve, offered to serve this debased, lowly, outcast, unworthy sinner. What would you like me to do for you? Well, what, what do you think, Jesus? I'm blind. Well, Jesus knew, of course, that Bartimaeus was blind. Jesus knew that he wanted to be healed of his blindness, but he engaged Bartimaeus at this level by asking him what he wanted to do for him for the very reason to go beyond his physical needs. He wanted to get Bartimaeus to understand his spiritual needs and change his destiny forever with one simple encounter with the God of heaven. Which leads us to our final point, the power to save. Aren't you happy for that character quality? <laughs> Not just willing, but able. I'm willing to do a lot of things. Believe me, just can't do it. But we have one who can. So after Bartimaeus replied, I want to see, Jesus said, your faith has made you well. Now, this is, this is not so obvious in the English language. In the Greek language, it jumps off the page. The word well is not just physical wellness. It's the word sozo which is used throughout the entire New Testament for salvation. Your faith has saved you spiritually. You are now in the kingdom of God. You are now a part of God's family. We will now see blind Bartimaeus, who is not blind any longer, in heaven. What this means is Bartimaeus not only received his physical sight, but his salvation as well. And so how can we be sure that this, it doesn't say it, how can we be certain? Well, if you don't like the original language help, maybe the last verse of this text will help you. See, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that we will see Bartimaeus in heaven one day. What is it that transformed people do? What is it that people have been given a new heart do, ultimately, what do they do? They follow Jesus, don't they? And what's Bartimaeus doing in verse 52? Following Jesus. 
Does this encourage your heart? Friends, have you been able to look in the mirror of your soul and examine the ingredients of biblical, true, saving faith? Are there hints of it? Well, if you're uncertain, Jesus is the same yesterday in Bartimaeus' day, today and forever. He responds to those who cry out to him for mercy. Do so. Right where you sit. Plead with this loving, gentle Savior that he might have mercy on you. As he did Bartimaeus. As he's had on millions and millions of people before you. If you want to speak to somebody, to pray with somebody this morning, we're going to be hanging around up here afterwards. And I encourage you to come and talk to us. Pray with us. We'd love to do that. Father, we thank you that you have, by your spirit, guided us through this amazing story of Bartimaeus, helping us see another example, clear example, of genuine, authentic, biblical, saving faith. Thank you also for this beautiful and winsome presentation of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who loves us who wants to be with us, who has the power to save us. Oh, Jesus, we thank you so much that this is your demeanor towards us, that we don't have to cower when we come, but that we come running expectantly, knowing, like Bartimaeus, that something good's going to happen. And we pray this in your name. Amen.